Welcome, everyone. Thank you so very much for joining me today for another episode of Talking Cloud. Now, you know, this is where we talk about all things cloud, anything cloud, cloud computing, the services, the gotchas, the problems, the concerns, the great benefits, anything cloud. And you all know I am no expert, but I really dig hard to find them. And man, oh man, I found a huge gold nugget today. I'm telling you, I'm so fortunate. You know, I've been in the biz a long, long time and I've spoken at a number of executive events. And in a previous career, a previous role, I was at a very large CISO event where I met this gentleman. So excited to have a conversation with Ed. I mean, this is a guy who, talk about experience in cyber and really seeing it from the top. Uh, we got the guy. So uh, buck up, buckle up your seats, move to the edge, and hang on for the next few minutes because we're going to have a great podcast. This guy today is the CEO and founder of Tag Cyber. He's also a researcher uh, for it's uh, New York University, I think. I'll let him correct me in a second. The guy was a, a CISO senior vice president for a Fortune 100 company for many years. And I am so thrilled to have Ed Amoroso on the program today with me. Ed, thank you very, very much for joining me. Well, thank you, Grant. Thanks for having me. So could you take a minute, Ed, please, and just kind of, uh, I mean, you got such a storied career. If you could just maybe fill in a little bit of the background for our audience, please. I'd be happy to. I mean, I, I've devoted my entire life, basically, to cybersecurity. I fell, fell into it, not by accident. I, my dad was a computer scientist, and um, when I was leaving uh, undergrad, I was a physics major. I, I knew I wanted to get into computing, so I, 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 and my, my dad was a, um, a math professor at Stevens in Hoboken. So I, I'm very close with my dad. So I, I, I wanted to go there. And he said, that's, that's fine. Come over. He goes, but you ought to get into cybersecurity. We didn't call it then that. Then you called it uh, computer security mm -hmm. or information security. We said, I have a feeling that's going to be a big area. And that was in 1983. Wow. So I started working in that area. And I had always been a little bit of a hacker. I grew up with an ARPANET connection into my home when I was mm -hmm. a kid. So... Um, so I, I eventually found my way into Bell Laboratories and got to work on Unix security with some of the great masters. It was wonderful training. And then mid-career, um, was asked by some of the senior leaders at the company at AT&T to, to figure out how to protect the, the firm. And that was when companies were just starting to think about uh, creating positions, which we would now call the CISO. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started doing that in the early 90s and you know spent the... Uh, almost 20 years, um, you know, kind of building out and, and, and probably making every mistake you could possibly make, but, hmm. but figuring it out. And um, I think that if there's one sort of um, observation I've had is that uh, the more you learn, the, the deeper the, the, the problems in and around cybersecurity uh, appear, the, the, the depth of challenge reveals itself as you learn more. It's not, it's not the opposite. You don't, you don't yeah. find the bottom of the swimming pool. It yeah, gets that's, deeper. That's interesting. You know, um, and in that subject, I had a discussion with uh, Jay Leak, who's one of the founders of um, 
about a three four hundred million dollar fund that does a bunch of investments and we were talking about blast radius if you will or 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 uh, knowledge radius of the youth today as opposed to depth of knowledge and specifically <clears throat> you know the awareness and knowledge about all the different apps and things you can do kind of on the surface is vast but not too many know what a mask is or a, a, a subnet or, a, or how to self-assign an IP address. And it seems like as cyber continues to infiltrate and take over literally everything that we are doing, some of those deeply rooted functions uh, are lost. And that can make it more difficult to build good cybersecurity can't it? I mean, if you're not intimately familiar with that, those deep functions. Well, no. First of all, Jay, Jay's an amazing guy. It's great that you're talking to Jay. What a what a wonderful and capable um, technologist. But on, in terms of the stuff you're talking about, I mean, your your podcast is around cloud, and the essence of cloud is finding a a steward that knows how to do something better than you do and, and entrusting your computing, your applications, your workload, whatever, to that steward. And nowadays, the, the stewards that come to mind are um, Amazon and Google and Microsoft and many of the as-a-service companies. But the original stewards were Verizon, AT&T, and the larger telcos. When you decided you were going to hook up all your different sites around the globe, you entrusted your data to these service providers, you handed them off, and you didn't worry about the mechanics at that time of, say, um, circuit switching or eventually MPLS and VPN, and now uh, software-defined 5G. Right. So you don't worry about that. You entrust, and for the same reason, you know, understanding how to mask or self-assign IPs. You would hope that that's not something that's necessary to be a safe and secure user of computing. You would hope that's taken care of at the infrastructure level, and that's. I believe the essence and promise of cloud, this idea that if done properly, I have this spectacularly convenient partner that can take care of those things so that I can attend to my poetry writing or grammar school teaching or running my auto repair shop or you know, running a consultancy or doing whatever it is you do uh, without having to worry about uh, attending to the problems of the inner problems of cybersecurity. One, right. one would hope that that's all taken care of. Yeah, you know, I um, I remember a commercial, Ed. You may remember this many years ago. Uh, and uh, there's only a few uh, handful of companies on the planet that can make commercials that end up pulling at my heartstrings, and you know, AT and T <laughs> has definitely been one of them. But I distinctly remember a commercial where it showed this guy in a swimsuit you know, laying on a beach towel on a beach, it looked like in Mexico or someplace tropical. And the narrator is saying, ever imagine being at work and at the beach? You mm. will. And mm. I thought of that actually on a promotion for my podcast. Ever think we're going to have a chance to talk to the CISO from AT&T? You will. But I just, I remember those commercials because they were so tantalizing, so alluring to think I could be on the beach with no wires and actually be doing my email. I mean, that was extraordinary. And look at where we are today. 
You know, it's funny that 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 series which featured um, Tom Selleck. Um, it was called the You Will campaign, and you you can get it on on um, on YouTube. If people are listening and they want to watch. They're pretty spectacular. Awesome. very accurately with the help of um, the Bell Labs team at the time. Uh, they accurately predicted Easy Pass. Um, accurately predicted um, telework accurately predicted many of the things that we take for granted today. And, and, you know, it's one of these things that I teach my, my students, you know, you'd mentioned earlier, I'm over at uh, NYU. I'm in the uh, center for cybersecurity at um, NYU uh, Tandon or been for about uh, four years now. But um, what we teach our students is that if you can imagine it, then you can do it. I mean, one, one of the things that I remember we, we started doing some, um, extensions to that you will series um, that are also on on YouTube where we had a hologram in front of a classroom and it was George Washington fielding uh, answers mm. you know where machine learning teaches the hologram what the right answers are it feeds it everything that George Washington ever said mm. um, teaches it context and then you could have Abraham Lincoln walk into a classroom virtually and how about this? Walk into a virtual classroom so right. that everybody's experiencing it remotely. And the kids can have a rap with Abe Lincoln asking, what was it like to grow up? What, what do you think about the Internet? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and having conversations with historical figures. Now, you and I both know you can do that. Do I know any startups doing it? Eh, a little bit. But at some point, we'll see these things that we imagine today. Mm-hmm. They'll be absolutely nothing to think of uh you know oh you know wow that's um back in 2020 you know we were we were dreaming that and now we have it i mean that's the beauty of technology that's why you and i work in the area we do because you don't you can see about as far as your headlights clearly but the people who are successful are ones who can imagine much further right so i See, when I'm getting my car in New York and I want to drive to California, I can't see California. I can only see about, you know, uh, 100 feet down the road. Right. But I can imagine where I'm going. And that's that's what's so great about tech, that you can you can guide teams based on a vision. That That's that's why I do what I do. Yeah. You know, there's that's such a brilliant example of the advancements and how what we imagined Yesterday is going to become so commonplace. There's many things like that uh, today that we just yeah. we just don't even think about, right? I was talking with my wife yesterday about how close she and I feel, despite I travel all around the world because of FaceTime and and those types mm-hmm. of technologies that allow me to to see her and actually see her face, and it really is pretty pretty amazing you know here's an interesting kind of future vision for your audience to imagine in cybersecurity. anyone you talk to would say that the offense is getting more automated right you probably interview people all the time who say that automation bots um, collections of uh, attackers all strung together with automation that's how you do offense and i'll bet everyone you interview would agree that the defense is also becoming more automated, that it's a, a bunch of automatic and uh, increasingly autonomous protection systems that respond to the offense. Well, if you take that to its logical extreme, 
Then you've got automated offense against automated defense. My joke is it's like a, a humidifier and a dehumidifier fighting it out in a room. You know, we're going to get to the point where human beings might curate a fully automated cyber war and just agree based on norms on who wins. I mean, that's entirely possible because we're so close to that now yeah. where these computing systems that we're dependent on are fighting each other. And, and that's okay as long as you, I'm, I'm in some, you know, dystopian view of, you know, computers taking over, but rather that these tools that we use, this automation that we use, uh, when you inject malicious and benevolent um, intent, then you, you, you create a situation where there's conflict, and that's probably the future of cybersecurity, the curation of these online battles that uh, occur so fast that the human can't figure out what's happening, yep. but can merely observe and curate the results. So, so that's that's a, a a very different way of thinking about cybersecurity. But I think we're headed there. Yeah, very fascinating. Well, the, you know, the one of the things certainly as it relates to uh, cloud. When I talk to customers and and vendors, is the comment you just made, and that is the whole idea of automating and uh, auto remediation and building out more and more intelligence because and in fact I have uh, I have a report right here from Gartner um, that came out last October where Neil McDonald suggests <clears throat> you can actually build a more secure data center uh, and one that's more automated more advanced than you could uh, previously in your own on-site, on-premise data center using uh, the tools and the capabilities that are now getting offered from the cloud providers. Yeah, I mean, it's rare that I agree with Gartner. I like Neil. He's a good guy. <laughs> but you, usually my algorithm is if Gartner says X, then it's usually not X. But in this case, I think they're right. Yeah. That, um, you know, if you look at your little ragtag team in a, in a small to medium-sized business, um, you know, maybe Kevin over there on the side of the room tends to your 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 equipment closet where you've got some servers and and you're going to try and protect your 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 data. Let's say you're a, a law firm or something and you've got a bunch of computers and and Kevin is your intern. Well, the question is, can Kevin do a better job than Microsoft? Um, probably not. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you so. know, when you put it, 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 it when you when you present it in that way. Who, it's like that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Now, now, in contrast, if you're the Bank of America and you've got a first-class team, you know, you've got Craig Froelich running the place and you've got a nice budget and you can fine-tune and tailor what you do to your culture and needs and future vision, then maybe not. Then maybe cloud becomes a utility where you toss workloads if the economics make sense and you right. do your own protection around it. So there's an inflection point. It used to be that that inflection point was, you know, much lower. You know, two people starting a business are not going to set up an IT team. They're going to sign up for, you know, Microsoft or Google. But now that inflection point is sliding further and further toward mid and larger companies where it's becoming more difficult to make the case that running your own Outlook server complex and infrastructure makes more sense right. than just signing everybody up for Office 365. Yep. And, and that's consistent, I think, with uh, the point you made um, 
you know, earlier that, that Neil made that you, you, you can, you can probably do a better job. Like dare we say the cloud becomes part of the security equation rather than a detractor. Like you've moved it from the debit side of the, of the, uh, uh, of the balance sheet to the credit side. Cloud is now something I give you credit for as a security control versus the reverse, maybe, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very similar. I think, you know, uh, you and I started, it sounds, at pretty similar times, although I was I was uh, 19 years old selling for this wholesale distributor of fishing tackle and knives. Didn't fish, didn't carry a knife. And the guy who uh, owned the business, small little tertiary supplier, you know, I think we did less than a million dollars and we had eight employees, company cars. But he went out and bought an Apple II Plus in 1983, or excuse me, 1982, from the only mm. dealer in town. And I couldn't spell computer. And it was, you know, with the intentions of managing our inventory. One year later, June of 1983, we opened up an Apple dealership. And, you know, here I'm standing in a computer store and I couldn't even spell computer. But it was um, a really interesting learning experience entering in the business at that time and, you know, going through... Uh, the journey as networking came on. Now, you are clearly uh, much more on the technical side. I've always said I'm the Gilligan, you're the professor. That's why I have you as uh, on the program. But you said you started really early in cyber and you were involved in Unix security. So maybe you can talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about how security, you think how cyber security has evolved and and uh, maybe what are what are the things that we should be thinking about now that we're in the cloud and there's no borders and everybody's federating and hyper-connected? What do you think are maybe the top uh, three, four things that our listeners might uh, put at the top of their list for things to uh, think about or, or get prepared for going forward? I know that was a long convoluted no, question. I think it's fine. I mean, let's take one big broad theme that stretches across decades that I think people will recognize. And that's that if you go back into the 80s and 90s, um, computer security or infosec, as we called it then, was a centralized activity. You know, you didn't have PCs, you had mainframe computers. It might be a big uh, VAX 11780 running Unix or some some operating system that supported time sharing of a large group of people who'd work together in a building in a company. Um, and the system administrators were viewed as technical gods at the time. You know, a Unix system administrator, when I first started, was about the, the noblest thing you could ever do. I remember this wonderful guy named Dave DeGraff. I work with the Bell Laboratories. I remember he was a legend because he was our Unix system admin. I did some work with him. It was an honor to work with him. But he was a legend because he'd been a senior manager, but then decided he hated it and decided that it was a more noble calling to be our Unix system admin. And, and it's hard to, to, to give people a feel for what, what that means now because after that period when we all got PCs, we got these obnoxious office mates called personal computers that we, and what, what people didn't notice is that suddenly we all had to administer these things. My friend Marcus Raynham, who's um, you know one of the icons in cybersecurity said something 
that I memorized. I've been repeating it since he said it probably 20 years ago. He, he said something very prescient. He said, the tragedy of modern computing is that it's turned every man, woman, and child on the planet into a Windows system administrator. And I always thought that was that was what happened. So my this iconic Dave DeGraff, who was at the top of the respect ladder at a place like Bell Laboratories, suddenly was replaced by very ineffective distributed system administrative tasks by every man, woman, and child on the planet. Mm. And we went from centralized InfoSec to massively decentralized cybersecurity in the late 90s into the thousand, uh, 2000s into the early 10s. Mm -hmm. So that was a dark period. That was a period where, you know, all the problems that we've seen in cybersecurity became more intense. Um, we had this notion of a dumb network where you just want networks to, to, to do nothing, just, just move packets from Alice to Bob and stay out of the way. And you do all of the work at Alice and Bob and suddenly budgets burgeoned. It's not unusual to see the security budget in a company almost as big as the entire IT budget. Um, so now what's happened is the pendulum has swung back towards centralization and we call that cloud, meaning it's just crazy that every business, every individual, every child, every grandma has to be a system and security administrator. Are you kidding me? Like this is the dumbest thing I can imagine. I will grant you that all of us need to have some responsibility. Like I, I know in my home, if I take a sharp knife, a metal knife, and I jam it into a wall socket and I get a hell of a shock, it's not the it's not a bad wall socket design. There's some things I, sh I should be reasonable in to to learn not to do, but but it it can't be the kind of thing where oh my gosh if you click on an email, and you're tricked three times I'm going to fire you because you big dummy what's the matter with you can't you see these are phishing messages that's not acceptable people use email people are busy we should be able to use tools that are given to us and have the security properties embedded in and designed into those systems so that I, you know, it's not like with the, the, the knife jamming it into the wall outlet. Yeah, that's, that's, I shouldn't do that. But if I just hold the knife just so in my hand and I get a hell of a shock, that's not fair. And you tell me, make sure you don't hold the knife that way. Cause God help you. you it could kill you. And that's why COVID is such an, uh, spectacular inconvenience. We all know that you know, there are diseases that we can pick up, but we know that there are these centralized places, hospitals and other places that can take care of us. Now with COVID, they can't. So we've distributed the responsibility to every man, woman, and child, and we don't like it. We don't mm -hmm. want to do it. We, don't want, to, we, we want, want these things taken care of so we can go live our lives. Cybersecurity is the same thing. We want to be able to download apps and play games and run businesses and buy computers that we like and have fun and be entertained and watch Netflix and start businesses, all the things you do with computing without having to be a security administrator, for God's sake. So the pendulum is swinging back. And we all know now that if you sign up for as a service, like if you use ADP or Gusto or one of those nice companies for payroll, or if you're using Microsoft for your email and calendar, if you're using Google to support some workflow tools and storage and you're using Amazon to push work, 
These are companies that know how to do security and they're going to take care of you. You can still you know, do the equivalent of jamming your, your knife in the wall socket and get zapped, but they are going to take care of most of the problems. And I, I think that that's, that's a nice shift back to something more centralized. How well are you protected in the cloud? How fast do you move when the cloud moves at the speed of DevOps? And do you have the confidence you see everything you need to see, good or bad? Checkpoint Software. Cloud with confidence. See it. Control it. Secure it. When I was working for Apple and I, would, I just recalled Arco, Alaska, was a subsidiary of Atlantic Richfield. Mm. And um, they were real renegades. They had 12, well, nine, 900 Macintosh computers, but they had a 3090. And, you know, of course, Atlantic Richfield, L.A. was all SNA, all IBM. Your comment about the pendulum swing, I think, is very fascinating because, you know, back then, of course, everything was all centralized and they were doing, you know, the Irma cards to push that infosec into those new devices, right? I mean, they were kind of trying to continue to deliver that centralized environment, right? That's what we did for a while. But it was fascinating to me because I remember specifically when they decided as an IT department to standardize on TCP IP. And I know that kind of sounds funny. This was, it was like in 1988. And I remember there was a man who ran their telecom, Bruce Holty, who just was maniacal, slamming his fist down on the table saying, we have to do TCP IP because you had the IBM guy saying, token ring. And it was just really interesting how then they standardized on what became the internet. It is that standardization that's kind of enabled the environment, right? I mean, without the cloud and without the Amazons, we wouldn't be able to pry it from the hands of all of the PCs, would we? Well, it, this, you can standardize a bad architecture that has lots of different technologies. Like uh, Novell had the, the majority of local area network business in the 90s running IPX. IPX, yeah. So we all, we all tunneled IPX over IP, which was crazy. It'd be like driving your your car to a railroad, you know, driving the car onto the railroad, going across the country in the railroad, and then climbing off the railroad and driving your car the last mile. That's how IP and IPX worked then. That's and the, the, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's exactly how I successfully sold British Petroleum by putting what was called Pacer Share, which was this utility that ran in a VAX environment. It would run on a, on a, a, a VMX environment, and it would tunnel Apple Talk protocol inside of DECnet, basically give it a header and trailer so that the DECnet network that was already in place could now carry the Mac protocols. Yeah, yeah. so you can... Uh, the standardization is, is not so much the... The challenge it's coming up with good architecture so what we're hoping with 5g for example is that it will be flexible enough with the software enabled core that you'll be able to pretty much do whatever you want like people say wow 5g is awesome because it's going to you know make my uh, movies play faster or something I, I don't know, more more capacity but i don't see that as the primary benefit i see it as the ability to configure more sensible um, 
computing. And be, again, because, it, because it's software, it's not hardware. So we can make changes. We can add things to the, uh, the internal, the, the, the heartbeat of a 5G network is called an SDN controller. And, and that thing will have the ability to be extensible. Um, so, so it's going to be pretty exciting run um, once 5G becomes an important part of what we're doing. Because then, in addition to just cloud, you'll have the ability with your service provider to let them take care of a bunch of stuff for you. Like you take your family into the Verizon store and you're ready to sign up for something and they say, hey, would you like um, you know, uh, privacy protection? Oh, really? What's that? Well, it's this thing we do in our 5G core that makes sure blah, 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 whatever it is. Right. And for two bucks a month, you'll say, yeah. And it, I mean, it's just an extension of cloud. It's an, And can they do that better than you? Yes. So why not let them? I mean, that's the essence of cloud. That's the essence of, you know, the um, modern approach and that pendulum swing back toward having things uh, a little bit more centralized, not centralized in a bad way, was a sort of dictatorial thing, but centralized in the sense that you should put responsibility in places where people have expertise. Yeah, as a service, I think is changing our world in many, many, many different ways. I mean, look at transportation as a service, right? And certainly, as we get to driverless vehicles, it's going to be a whole new world. I, I had a conversation. I thought it was interesting. The guy suggested how much real estate we'll be able to recover from parking lots because cars now won't have to leave any space between them. They'll drop you off at the door and go and park. It makes for some interesting pondering for sure. Yeah. So speaking of pondering, uh, well, first, actually, I want to pull on one thing, uh, and that is this I had a discussion with a guy the other day about TCPIP, about standardizing on TCPIP as the internet protocol and whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing on how we got there. And I guess I just am curious to hear, because he was talking about how if we'd have started out with a protocol that said, I'm going to secure what matters, the data, forget about any of this other stuff, instead of the modality that we went through kind of, uh-oh, moat around the castle and then slowly um, make it a smaller and smaller perimeter. What, what, what's your thoughts on, on that? And is, is there going to be a new internet? Do you think that that's going to change? I mean, will IPv6 make a difference with any of that? I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Well, the, um, the creation of the internet is a spectacular achievement that involved no standardization because there are no, there's no such thing as an internet standard. There's RFCs. And I, I've often said that the genius of what's been built and, and um, you know, the, the, this idea that uh, uh, an idea is proposed, it's called a request for comment. Anybody on the planet can comment on it, including an individual in some country you never heard of or a large company like IBM, all treated the same. And then at some point, a draft RFC becomes stable enough that companies start to build products to it. That's how the internet was built. There's no mm -hmm. standard. There's no, no point, point me to a standard. There aren't any I know there's standards around the internet, but the internet is built on RFCs. And I, I've often said that and Vince Cerf is a good friend of mine, a wonderful man, probably will go down historically as someone who had a lot more impact than, say, many of our presidents. 
so he's that this this construct is something that I think should be studied a little more carefully by people who who look at non-technical international relations and and the development of norms between com- countries and between different cultures. This idea that rather than someone dictating a standard, allowing this organic growth of a bunch of different documents that we all comment on, and then watching it S-curve, where it's changing, it's changing, now it's changing less, it's changing less, it's leveled off, and most of the changes being proposed are not meaningful anymore. Now Ericsson and Cisco and Juniper, they say, hmm, I'm going to build a piece of gear to that. And the, and the RFC version is stamped. And yeah, you can still submit comments, but this is what these companies are going to build to. What a spectacular social experiment and achievement. That's why we've been able to build this global internet and make it work. And name another thing, just name something on planet Earth that involves every country, every person, and that is cooperative and works. Yeah, there is collaboration. There isn't one. There's no thing. There's not, it doesn't exist. Um, So, so the, I, I, I think that that societal construct of an RFC is a magnificent achievement. I don't know that when they created it, they were thinking ahead 50 years, Mm -hmm. but, but it, it really has stood the test of time. And I think it's become something that people don't understand and historians, because most historians are Luddites. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point you'll get historians who understand tech and will actually Walter Isaacson is an example of somebody who's pretty good, right. but um, a few historians who get it, most of them don't. But at some point we, I would hope historians will look at this and realize you could argue the internet is about as consequential to human life as say the printing press. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, the secret sauce to the internet was not a standard, it was the RFC. Yeah, that's brilliant. I had the wonderful benefit, Ed, of uh, going to work for a company in the early, I guess it was early 98, that actually, you know, these were the guys that ported Bind to Windows. And, you know, I couldn't spell DNS. But I learned, and I have to tell you, that's one of the most remarkable technologies. The fact that, you know, I always describe it as a tree upside down. And that one leaf way out at the end of the branch can find any other leaf on the planet. That's remarkable. Well, you're right. I mean, and it comes down to this centralized versus decentralized thing again yeah so so first off you know with the rfc and the internet and so on it's massively decentralized agreement on things but bind is an example of a piece of software that was cobbled together that had so many security disastrous bugs in it for so long that you know, it, it took time for it to come down the experience curve and for, for, you know, for most of us now to worry less about DNS. But there were times when that, uh, you know, some of the people listening would have pointed to versions of Bind as maybe being one of the top vulnerability contributors in the entire enterprise. No question. So, so it's funny how, um, you know, that's a, a piece of software that probably would have been better if, you know, some really, really good house 
had built something and had been more successful marketing it. But we, we, we all liked using it and liked the idea that it was free. And, you know, most people would run their own DNS complex, big, com, uh, big companies, because you could do it. And then just, you know, constantly get into this vulnerability battle for, for years and years and years. I, I think back to that era, you know, with both fondness and horror <laughs> at, uh, at, all the, at all the problems that we had with um, DNS software. Now the problems with DNS are different. They're right. a different set of issues. Usually you don't have, uh, have to be patching your DNS software every two minutes. That's right. That's right. And this has been so enjoyable so enlightening and i really really love hearing your thoughts you've really i mean you're giving me some really interesting things to think about and hopefully my listeners are all uh, imagining what's beyond their headlights and what they uh, see for their future i really really appreciate you coming in and talking with me so thank you very very much ed my pleasure and good luck with the podcast. Any, fi any, any final comments you'd like to share before we sign off? Only that we're, we're recording this right in the middle of the uh, early stages of the pandemic, and I hope people who are listening will stay nice and safe and healthy and wish, wish you all good, good wishes and good luck with uh, family and friends. Terrific. Ed, thank you. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been one that'll go down in the epic books. I'm telling you, really, really super excited and proud to have uh, Ed join me today. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I hope you found the time well spent, and I certainly hope we'll have you back again on another episode of Talking Cloud. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs>